He was kidnapped. He was an outlaw. Although a priest, he pretended to be a knight by the name of Sir George for 10 months in order to stay alive. He arranged the smuggling of nine nuns from a nunnery in a different state by having them hide in barrels in a covered wagon. If that wasn't interesting enough, he married off eight of the nuns, and after enough pressure from others and the ninth nun, he married her himself. Periodically, he drank too much. His posture towards the Jews was unacceptable. His humor could make people feel uncomfortable. Yet amidst all of his character flaws, I think the German reformer Martin Luther ought to be briefly remembered, not worshipped, just remembered on this 500th Reformation Sunday. On All Saints' Eve, October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed to the church door at Wittenberg a list of 95 theses for debate over the matter of indulgences. What were indulgences? Carl Truman, in his book, Luther on the Christian Life, says this, Indulgences were certificates sold by the church, and they guaranteed the purchaser or the designated beneficiary relief from a a stipulated period of time in purgatory. In medieval Catholic theology, when people died, they went to one of three places. They went to hell, to heaven, or more likely to purgatory, a place where the godly might be purged of their remaining impurities before being allowed into paradise. These 95 theses were not a Reformation manifesto. Luther's theology within the document is still clearly Roman Catholic, but... This was the spark that led to the raging blaze of the Protestant Reformation. Immediately, there were demands for Luther to be burned as a heretic, and eventually, he was summoned to recant. The backlash Luther received from the church revealed where they based their authority. Rather than in Scripture, the Pope had the final say. In these major conflicts, Luther was forced to clarify what he believed Scripture taught about how one is made right with God. Although he was trained to believe, quote, God will not deny grace to those who do their best, it was a couple of years after nailing those theses to the church door that a startling theological point became clear to him for the first time as he studied Romans 1.17. And here are Luther's words. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I raged with a troubled conscience at last by the mercy of God, meditating day and night. I gave heed to the context of the words, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. 
And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And that is where we find ourselves this morning. We will read another text where some in the church had forgotten the gospel, and it answers how we might be made right with God. So please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 16, Our sermon will focus on verses 15 and 16, but we'll read 11 through 16 to gain some context. Galatians 2, starting in verse 11. And Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, and Paul mentions the name Cephas, and that's Peter. So that's just a little bit of clue for what we're going to be talking about later. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you... Though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So if you get around the lunch table or the dinner table, depending on where you're from this afternoon, and you guys are thinking, oh, what was the sermon about? I'm going to throw it out there right at the beginning. The big idea is this. Genuine Christians are justified by faith alone. Genuine Christians are justified by faith alone. And maybe even as I say that, some of you have already checked out. Because you, like me, if I heard something like that, something would come into my brain, something like, I got that figured out. I've heard enough sermons on justification by faith. I'm just going to check out and let's just think about how we're going to do against Tampa later. But here's the thing. If that was you, this message is especially for you. Because here we see the rock, Peter, who himself forgot the gospel. So after briefly looking at the context, we've got two points. Definitions and demonstrations. Definitions and demonstrations. So how about the context? 
Well, we got a good old-fashioned fight in the fellowship hall right here, don't we? I mean, Paul confronts Peter in the city of Antioch. This was Paul's missionary base. So what was the drama all about? Peter had been at meals where Jewish and Gentile Christians ate together. But here we see Peter did what? What did he do? The scriptures say he drew back and separated himself, eating only with the Jewish Christians. Men who came from the church in Jerusalem encouraged Jewish Christians to eat separately from the Gentiles. So Peter went along with this, possibly not realizing that his example would make the Gentile Christians feel like they could not measure up in the church unless they followed these Jewish ceremonial laws. One scholar wrote this, Paul saw that Peter's behavior threatened the gospel of justification by faith alone because it implied because it implied that all Christians had to live like Jews in order to be justified before God. Peter was guilty of hypocrisy because though he had been happily living like a Gentile, he was now requiring the Gentile Christians to observe Jewish table regulations if they wanted to eat with him. But such a requirement would undermine the gospel itself by making justification depend on works of the law rather than faith in Christ. So that first point, definitions. Let's focus in on verses 15 and 16. 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Peter doesn't just say, Paul doesn't just say to Peter, hey man, you're breaking the rules, what is wrong with you? He doesn't. Rather, he identifies with Peter's cultural perspective and then reminds him of the gospel. He does this by using terms like justified and faith. So what is justification? What is it? The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers this question succinctly. By the way, don't be too cool for the catechism. Don't be too cool for it. It's a treasure trove of biblical clarity. Listen to how... It uh, defines justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, I mean, there's a few things we've got to talk about in regards to justification, Because I know that some very well-intentioned Bible teachers in your life have taught you that justification means just as if you had never sinned. Has anybody ever been taught that before? It includes that. But what if I was to tell you there's more? See, the catechism draws this out and it says, our sins are not only forgiven, but there's something more to it. And what do you think that is? We get the righteousness of another, what the catechism calls imputed righteousness, what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness of Christ, his moral perfect record accounted to ours. And how do we get those things? By faith alone. Well, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The Catechism says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby, now listen to these double R's, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. What is meant by the phrase, by faith alone? The confession says, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Instrument. Hmm. Faith is the alone instrument of justification. Do you understand what we mean by the word instrument? Well, listen, let's say I had a gambling addiction and I needed $30,000 by Wednesday to pay off a guy or myself and possibly my family could be in serious trouble with some rough dudes. I happen to come up to you at the end of the worship service today and say, hey, I know this may be a bit of a surprise, but I need a check for $30,000 by Wednesday, and I explain my dire condition. Well, because you are extremely generous to volunteer preachers, you write me a check for $30,000. I pay off the debt, and the burden is lifted. It may be a silly story about a gambling preacher to wake you up a bit, but it has a serious lesson, and here it is. Was the check the grounds or basis of the payment you gave me? No. The check itself was just the instrument to make the payment. The grounds or basis of the payment were the funds in your bank account. The check was simply an instrument to transfer the funds. In a similar way, faith is simply the instrument of justification whereby we are forgiven of our sins and declared righteous by a holy God. Faith does not in itself justify you. Christ justifies you through the instrument of faith. This is what Paul meant in Ephesians 2.8 when he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. The Catholic Church in the days of Martin Luther believed that one was justified by faith plus works. And by the way, let's quit mischaracterizing the Roman Catholic Church thinking that they believed that they were saved by works. It's just, it's just not true. They believed that they were saved by faith plus works. The historic Protestant position was seen, has seen Scripture to teach that one is justified by faith alone, as we've seen in our text today. Yet let me ask you, what do you think faith really is? What do you think faith really is? Is it mere knowledge of what the Bible has to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ to save sinners? Well, sadly... And I mean this, sadly, there are many people who are in hell, who are on their way to hell, who simply knew the storyline of grace in the Bible but did not think it was true. Well, is that the deciding factor? 
that you not only need to know the truths of the gospel, but you need to confess the gospel truths are actually true. The book of James says that knowing the truths of Scripture to be true is still not enough. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and shudder. So what do we mean by faith? Again, hear Paul's words to Peter. We know that a person is justified by works of the law, but through faith, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. To Paul, it was not enough to simply know the truths of the gospel or to simply know the truths of the gospel to be true. You must know the truths to be true for you. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, illustrates this and drives this point perfectly. He says, Faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed by the word trust. Trust. Imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope, and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? This is why. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Do you know what this means? This means you don't have to wait for all doubts and fears to go away to take hold of Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking you have to banish all misgivings in order to meet God. That would turn your faith into one more way to be your own savior. Working on the quality and the purity of your commitment would become a way to merit salvation and put God in your debt. It is not the depth and purity of your heart but the work of Jesus Christ on behalf that saves us. It is not the depth and purity of your heart, but the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf that saves us. Faith then begins as you recognize and reject your alternative trust in God's and turn instead to the Father, asking for a relationship to him on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of your moral effort and achievements. So those are definitions. But what does this look like? How many of you guys know John 3.16? Okay. 
Olga, did you raise your hand? I'm going to get you to come up here and sit. <laughs> totally joking. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? I just got anxiety by playing that. All right. I'm just playing with you. A lot of hands went up. Well, how many of you know the two verses right before it? I didn't either. John 3, 14 and 15, just listen. And this is starting our second point, demonstrations. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is referring to a very, very disturbing story in Numbers 21. Moses was leading the people in the desert after they were brought out of Egypt. This is when God miraculously redeemed the Israelites out of slavery, and they were on their way to the promised land. Although God had provided the Israelites with both food and drink while they journeyed, they grew incredibly discontent and irritable. How many of you could say that pretty much describes your current situation? Discontent and irritable. They grew incredibly discontent and irritable, so much so that they spoke against Moses and God saying, listen to this. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent the snakes. That's right, the snakes. Not just any snakes, but in the Hebrew it means fiery serpents. And what is the big deal? It is not that these snakes were on fire. That would be incredible. That'd be so cool. Talk about a sci-fi, right? But they set you on fire when they bit you in a figurative sense. The symptoms were scorching and flames swelling around the bite that spread. Also, it wouldn't be long until the victim would have a raging fever and unquenchable thirst. This all added up to what felt like a consuming fire within, and eventually you would die. Now, on the surface, it might come across as an overreaction, but this was the way that God chose to show the Israelites what was ultimately killing them, which was the poison in their souls. That was the venom from the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You see, when God created everything, it was perfect and good. Humanity was in perfect communion with God where he was their father and they were his children. But something terrible happened. Do you remember? The serpent came into the garden and his venom passed into the souls of humanity. And since then, we have been born with a consuming fire within our souls of deep discontent and dissatisfaction with God. Thus, we live with an unquenchable thirst for something to satisfy us, and we never find it, do we? We never find it apart from deep communion with God. We will be forever discontent, forever irritable, and forever grumbling. This is what was wrong at the soul level with the Israelites. And the same goes for us. 
the people realized that they had done what they had done, and they confessed to Moses that they had sinned against him and God. And they asked Moses to ask God to take away the snakes. But God had a better plan. Really, a better plan than taking away the snakes. Instead of just taking away the snakes, he provided a way for the dying to be healed. God told Moses, now listen to this. He told Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Huh. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Does this not sound a little disturbing to you? Make a huge representation of the very thing that is killing them. And by looking to it, they would be healed. What is going on here? This would have been disturbing to the Israelites as well. The serpent represented evil and the animal was unclean by the standards in Leviticus. But remember, Jesus connected himself to the story by basically saying this, what the bronze serpent was, I am. Jesus, in our place, on our behalf, takes the poison of sin upon himself so we would not ultimately die of it. Although completely righteous, he takes on the punishment of our evil. Although he is spotless, he absorbs the wrath of the unclean who eventually look to him. On the cross, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. And in a sense that I don't understand, in a sense, lifted in the air was simultaneously what was killing us and who can heal us. Although the Israelites, all they, have to do, all they had to do was look and be healed. Moses did not say to those who could climb the pole and touch the serpent at the top, hey, if you do that, you'll be healed. This would leave the weak dying, and only the strong would live. Moses didn't tell the people to do anything but look at the bronze serpent. Not faith plus works, but faith alone is demonstrated clearly in this story. So what does Jesus mean here? He wants us to realize that all the other oppressive rulers in our hearts, the ones we trust more than him, are really a sham. He wants us to realize we have been bitten by the serpent and there is an evil poison within us that is swelling with fire, raging in fever, and creating in our souls an unquenchable thirst for everything but God. And the only remedy, the only medicine that will forgive us and heal us is Jesus. He wants us to stop trusting in our doing and start trusting in what he has done for us. Yet many of us have truly been saved by faith alone and yet we still continue to sin and we feel the effects of the serpent's bite. Many of us can actually relate to Peter, not just you know cast stones at him, but we can relate to Peter and his relapse and caring too much about what others think about him. Although God has imputed his righteousness to us, we live in a fallen world and are still people who sin. So how do we deal with the serpent's poison in the here and now? 
How do we deal with it? The exact same way. Let me ask you some questions. What are you grumbling about? Why are you so discontent? What is the Egypt of your life that you want to return to as if life will be better? The answers to these questions can begin to uncover your unbelief. God has provided so much sweet manna for you, and you turn your back on him in complaining and nagging and never-ending grumbling about your situation. You are exchanging the truth for a lie, and it is killing you. The serpent's poison has entered your system, and your situation is on fire. You are flaming hot and are experiencing an unquenchable thirst. Nothing will cure it. You have tried everything. And Jesus is saying, all you're doing will never heal you. You must admit you are poisoned. And you must admit the only cure is Jesus. Look to Jesus and he will heal you and continue to heal you. Receive him. Rest upon him alone. I'll conclude with a couple things. Martin Luther wrote this counsel in a letter to a friend. And it's really just, it's just lodged in my brain. He said this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, I shall be also. And that letter, that counsel to that friend, reminded me of the words and that great hymn before the throne. And there's so much application for this sermon. If you're wondering, hey, I wish you would have said this and wish you would have said that, me too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like, one, one just immediate application is don't get so much of a theological wedgie over things that unnecessarily divide you. And yet, be willing to speak against false doctrine. How nuanced is the Bible? It's incredible. I wish we could be that nuanced on our own strength, but we need the power of the Spirit. Another application quickly could be is when your child messes up, do you immediately beat them with the will? Why did you break the rules? That's so convicting to me. Why did you break the rules? Or are we reminding them of the gospel? And so my final application is that you would worship Christ. And I want you to hear these words from this hymn before the throne. And I invite you, some of you, you haven't worshiped Christ ever in your life. Some of you, it's been months. Some of you barely made it today and you haven't read your Bible in a week and you haven't prayed and you feel like you just can't work it up enough to get close to God. Throw all that down. 
Because let me tell you this, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Look to Jesus today you've never done it before don't wait to get cleaned up he's there saying I'm the only one that can cure you and I'm not telling you to do a bunch of stuff and jump up on this pole and touch me to be healed even if you are so feeble and crippled by the disease of sin just look to me and I will heal you. And so I plead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if he's nudging on your heart, if he is drawing you to himself, receive and rest upon him. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Oh, how we don't have to wonder how to be made right with you. Jesus, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would give us glimpses of the Father's love and how it was the Father who sent the Son in love to rescue us from ourselves. Lord, help us to see even the subtle forgetfulness in our hearts. When we forget the truth of the gospel, and we fall back in the default mode of the human heart, which is religion. Lord, we look and we see all the other religions trying to climb to you. And thank you that in your word you show that you came to us. Lord, more than anything, help us to worship you right now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.